Welcome to Harvest Mission Community Church. You are listening to one of our sermons. So I want to start off as you hopefully turn to that passage in Mark chapter 8. I'm wondering if you have ever given yourself to something with everything that you have. I want you to pause and think about this for a moment. Is there anything in your life? It could be a pursuit. It could be something that you really desired. Is there anything in your life that you have given your all because you really believe in it or you desired it so much? And as you know, that whenever we give of ourselves to something or even someone, it takes a lot of time, it takes a lot of energy, and it takes a lot of effort. Simply put, it demands your commitment to that thing or to that person. And as I was thinking about this, I realized that depending on how much you desire it, that will determine what kind of investment and what price you are willing to pay. I'm wondering what it is for you that's taking up a lot of your time, a lot of your energy, a lot of your effort, a lot of your thoughts that consume you, that you so desire to obtain it or to want it because you want to impact the world. I don't know how many of you know Navbatia, but he is considered a super fan. And those of you who might not know what's a super fan, it's just a totally a, like a fanatic. He is a super fan of the Toronto Raptors. Now, some of you have no idea what a Toronto Raptor is. It's like that little monster. No, I'm kidding. It's the basketball team from the NBA, National Basketball Association. And it's a team in Toronto, so the Toronto Raptors. And he has not missed a Toronto Raptors game for 22 years. Can you imagine? Talk about commitment. Talk about being all in. For 22 years, he has not missed a single Toronto Raptors game. Now, those of you who do watch NBA, you'll recognize him really quickly. So I wanted to show you this video as he kind of explains his passion and his love for not only basketball, but for the Toronto Raptors. And I want you to listen to it with some discerning ears or watch it with some discerning eyes. Why? Because if you would just close your eyes and if you just change some words, you, you would think that this person is sold-out Christian who loves Jesus and they want to share the gospel. So uh, I, I want you to listen to what Navadita, what he says about his commitment to the Toronto Raptors. Let's watch this together. If you just switch it basketball with the gospel or Jesus, this person is all in. Can you imagine what would happen if all the Christians in the world was, they were this committed to Jesus and this committed to the gospel. I want you to just sit on that for a moment. What would the world be like if every single person who professed to be a follower of Jesus Christ was this committed as this person is committed to basketball and the Toronto Raptors? What will happen in this world? We can only imagine not only would more people find hope, they'll find purpose and meaning in life, they'll have a sense of peace, because this world is filled with anxiety and just things that worry us and stress us. And I'm just wondering what it will be like if all the believers in the world 
were just as passionate, if not more, because of Jesus Christ and the gospel. I think if we were very honest, the problem with many of us is that when it comes to our relationship with Jesus Christ and our investment in the kingdom of God, we're not willing to make the sacrifice. In fact, if you were to examine or do an analysis of where all your time and all your energy and all your efforts, where it mostly goes to, it will help you to get a little glimpse of what you care about and what you believe. See, because all of us in this room, we could talk a big talk. Oh, we love Jesus. Or, yeah, I want to live for him. But it's really our actions that really dictate or it's a window to our hearts and helps us to understand where we're making our investments in our time, our treasures, our talents, our energy that we have, the efforts that we put forth, where we invest those things that God has given to us will give you a sharp realization of what it is that you're committed to and what it is that you want to invest in. What Jesus wants from us is he wants our hearts. He wants our affections. He wants our pursuits and our sacrifices to revolve around him and his kingdom. I love what Tim Keller said in his book, King's Cross. He writes this, Jesus says, I want you to follow me so fully, so intensely, so enduringly that all other attachments in your life look weak by comparison. I'm wondering if all of our attachments, whatever it is that you're attached to, it could be a person, it could be a dream, it could be your studies, it could be your work, it could be your, this idea of success. Whatever it is that you are attached to, that you are investing your time, your energy, everything that you have, is your love for Jesus in such a way that they will see that that attachment is so weak in comparison to your love and affection for Jesus Christ and his kingdom. That's why this morning I want to talk about this one thing, and the one thing is just right up here. It's simply this. Jesus requires us to give our all in order for us to follow his call. That Jesus, what he desires from us is for us to give our all, our all to him. And so that we can actually live out the very calling that God has given to us. I'm going to talk about two things here as we look at starting from chapter 8. The, the, the last part of it, all the way to chapter 9, verse 13. So two things that I want to talk about. The first thing is this. I want to talk about the cost of following Jesus. The cost of following Jesus. Because if we're going to talk about how Jesus is requiring us to give, us, give our all so that we can actually live out the call that he has given us, then we have to think about the cost that's involved in following Jesus. I think... There are so many things that we make decisions on that we don't really think about the cost. Somebody like, no, I do because, you know, I'm pinching pennies or like I'm really, I, I, I don't have much money. But I, I want you to think about not so much materially, but I want you to even think about time. When you decide to watch a Netflix series and it sucks you in. Or when you decide to watch YouTube and it just leads you down the trail. It started with a project that you're doing at school and then it led to bunnies. And I don't know, cute little bunnies. And you go through this trail and you realize that you have invested all this time. 
So you don't, re, you don't think about the cost now that you don't have that much time to take care of the things that you do and things that you have committed to because in that moment, you don't think about the cost. Now, don't raise your hand, but how many of you started off with just checking up on social media, just kind of scrolling, and the next thing you know, it's been about an hour, hour and a half. Come on, can I get a good amen? You know what I'm talking about. Some of you are like, no, I have this meter on my uh, phone. It shuts it down. It does all that stuff. Uh-uh, you know how to turn that thing off. You know what I'm saying? So bottom line is it just starts off very like, I'm going to just check up on things, what's going on, because I'm, I'm waiting for somebody. And the next thing you know, we're, we're looking at hours. So once again, you don't think about the cost that's involved, but we do the action, and it's only later we realize, wow, that was a pretty hefty cost. Because now I am scrambling and I'm cramming for that exam or for that project at work that I have to finish or other responsibilities that I have to do. As we progress through the gospel of Mark, we're going to notice that Jesus slowly reveals more of himself and his purposes to the disciples. That's why this is the presentation section where he's presenting himself not only as the Messiah, but he's presenting about the kingdom of God in, with more clarity and understanding. But before he does that, or as he does that, he's also telling them about the cause that is involved in following him. So there are two things that I want to highlight for us here that happens in this stage of this journey as we talk about the cause in following Jesus. The first thing that we will notice is the declaration of faith, that there is a declaration of faith. Let's go ahead and read Mark chapter 8, verse 27 through 30. This is what the Word of God says. And Jesus went, up on, Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them, to, not, uh, to tell no one about him. It's kind of interesting that when Jesus asked, who do people say that I am? What he really wanted to get to, the heart of the issue, is what the disciples thought of who he was. Therefore, after the disciples answered that some people are saying that you're John the Baptist or Elijah or some other kind of prophet, we see that Jesus in verse 29 he makes it personal and he asks, but who do you say I am? And I want to just pause here and challenge all of us in this room. This is Jesus' heart for every single one of you and for me. Who do you say Jesus Christ is? I think so often we base our relationship with Jesus Christ off on other people's relationship with Jesus. When we think about this, we, we are living off other people's convictions. Who do you say that I am? Because so often we tend to kind of follow the crowd. Oh, people are going to life groups. So I'm going to go to life group. Or people are doing this. So I'm going to, but you don't have any conviction. That's why a lot of times when you don't have a conviction, when you are away from that setting, you will totally do or not do the very thing that you did when you were in that setting. Good case in point, many of you went home. For vacation or for just the holiday break. Some of you have did not touch the Bible. Some of you did not pray. 
Some of you didn't even go to church. You were trying to go online maybe. And I understand there's different situations that causes that. But I'm just simply saying, if you really believe that my relationship with God is so important, and I need to hear from Him from the Word of God, I need to be in communion with Him, and I need to abide and to pray and to depend on Him, then once again, it doesn't matter about the situation or the context you're in. You will do that no matter what, wherever you go. This is the reason why I have seen so many people who look like they're doing really well in college because they go to all the gatherings, they do all the things, but as soon as they graduate and then they start working, it's almost as if they weren't even a Christian. Then the challenge is this. Did you have a conviction? Did you grow in your relationship with God? It's always easier to blame people, to blame the church, to blame your leaders. But nowhere in this process do you take responsibility and say, you know what? I wasn't even thinking why I went to that meeting. I wasn't even thinking about why I did that. It doesn't matter what other people say, but the question is, who do you say Jesus Christ is to you in your life? Do you have a personal relationship with him that is not dependent on a worship band, that is not determined by a life group, but it's really your personal relationship with God. So whether you are in Hong Kong, whether you are back home, whether you are in the desert somewhere, or you might be in a country where there's persecution, your relationship with God should be growing because why? It's a conviction that you have. Who do others say that I am? Who cares? What really matters is who do you say I am? That's what Jesus is asking us. Because Jesus is so concerned about our personal relationship with him. Peter responds and makes the declaration. He says, you are the Christ. Now, it's very significant that he actually says this. Because the word Christ is translated as the anointed one which is in reference to the Messiah. So in essence, he's pretty much saying, you are the Messiah. You are the anointed one. You are the Christ. Now, I need to pause here and help you to understand what's going on, because this is very important, as we're talking about the cost that's involved and the declaration of faith. We realize that Peter technically answered the question correctly. Jesus is the anointed one. He is the Messiah. But the problem is that he had misconceptions about the Messiah. See, during this time, there were many different views about the Messiah. But all of them involved this idea that there would be a king, and then there would be an earthly kingdom, and then there would be deliverance. Every single Jew during this time had that view of a Messiah, that he was going to be a conquering king that would come and he will rule and reign. He's going to establish an earthly kingdom, not a heavenly one, but an earthly kingdom. And then he would deliver the Israelite people, God's people, from the governments and everyone else. But that's exactly opposite of what Jesus did. Oh yeah, he was the king, a heavenly king, the king of kings. But he wasn't here to establish an earthly kingdom, but it was a heavenly one. And there will be deliverance, but not through an army or through might, but it's going to be deliverance in a spiritual realm. And I think this is the same way with so many of us Christians. We may answer all the right questions. Technically, yes, that is correct. 
But the problem is, I think many of us have a misconception about our relationship with Jesus Christ and who Jesus Christ is. Let me kind of break this down a little bit so you can understand. I think somehow a lot of people think that once you become a Christian, your life will get much better. And I'm telling you right now that it's not the case. It doesn't mean that all your pain will necessarily go away. It doesn't mean that some of the struggles and the situation you're in is going to somehow magically disappear. Jesus never promised that. So that's a misconception that we have. He did promise us his presence. He did promise us that he will be with us, that he overcame the world so that we will be able to overcome as we have faith in him and depend on him. So that one misconception can screw up your life. How? Because you think somehow your life is going to get so much better and it's going to be more successful. And once again, Jesus never promised that. And so as soon as you still struggle, you're like, what's the use? Why, why should I follow Jesus? And you see so many people who are like that. There are others who have a misconception. They think that somehow that there's no suffering or no bad things that will happen. I, I, I tell people, like, what prevents you in living a sin in a world that's full of sin that will cause you to avoid all that? You're just susceptible to experiencing bad things as a person who's a pre-Christian. Just think about people that you know. Think about your life. Why did I get raped when I was trying to love God? Why did my mom decide to do something that was horrendous? Or why did my dad leave? Or why couldn't I get that job? Or why is this struggling, financial struggle is happening in my life? Probably you're spending more than you should. But think, think about it for a moment. Just because you're a Christian does not isolate you from trials, tribulations, difficulties. This is a misconception that we have about our relationship with Jesus. This is why Jesus right away to Peter says, who do people say that I am? And Peter says, well, some say you're John the Baptist, Elijah, and one of the prophets. And then Jesus hones in and goes, who do you say I am? Because what Jesus wanted was a declaration of faith, that he is the anointed one. He is the Messiah. And even though they had a misconception, he was going to break it down and help them to understand. This leads to the second thing that you'll notice here, not only a declaration of faith, because we're talking about the cost of following Jesus. So there needs to be a declaration of faith, the second thing that I want you to notice is that there's a denial of self. There's a denial of self. Not only a declaration of faith, but a denial of self. Let's read verse 31 through 38. This is what the Word of God says. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? 
For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me of my, and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Now this is going to get kind of deep. Because not only was he wanting this declaration of faith, now he's zeroing in and talking about the denial of the self. Even though in the past Jesus hinted at his death, this is the first time Jesus clearly teaches his disciples that he must die, he must suffer and die and be raised from the dead. That's why in verse 32, we see Peter rebuke Jesus for saying such things. Can you imagine? Unheard of. That's like trying to rebuke your parents, right? Mom, dad, you don't know what you're talking about. Teenage life. Think about it. Here's Jesus, the anointed one, the son of God, who already performed all these miracles. And then here's Peter hearing that this Messiah has to suffer, die, and be raised from the dead and he, he just could not understand that he, he rebuked Jesus. Peter couldn't accept the fact that Jesus would not establish an earthly kingdom. Therefore, it was hard for him to reconcile his view of Messiahship. And then here's Jesus saying that he's going to die and he's going to suffer. No way, Messiah is not supposed to die. You're not supposed to suffer. You're supposed to come after conquering king. It was literally a discombobulation in his mind. He just couldn't fathom. Wait a minute. This is what I knew about what a Messiah is supposed to be. But here's Jesus saying all this. Wait a minute. Are you the Messiah? And that's why he rebuked him. And I love how Jesus responds. This is how you can respond to other people if you want. What does it say? Get behind me, Satan. Now, please don't say that to people. I need to be clear. You need to understand scripture. Peter, Jesus is not saying that Peter is Satan. Okay, that's not what he's saying. Or Satan was somehow behind, goes, woo, and he goes, get behind me. That's not what's happening here. What Jesus was rebuking and saying, get behind me, Satan, was simply that Satan was the source of Peter's thoughts. This is important. That this thought that Peter had about the Messiah that was supposed to be this conquering king and go against what the real Messiah was supposed to be, which is to suffer, die, and resurrect from the dead. What, when he said, get behind me, Satan, he is rebuking that spirit that has influenced Peter's thoughts. That's why the phrase, Set your, setting your mind on, has the same connotation of having a mental disposition for. Therefore, Peter was not thinking about the things of God or thinking about God's purpose, but rather on the things of human values and perspective. Jesus understood that this was God's will for him to suffer, to die, and to resurrect. In fact, Jesus knew as soon as he heard this from Peter, as he was getting rebuked by Peter. If you look at the Matthew account of the same story, you will notice that Jesus says this, that this is a hindrance or a trap. 
Listen to the Matthew translation. I want you to, I want you to read the yellow section with me. Listen to what it says. Jesus turned to Peter and said, get away from me, Satan. You are, come on, say this, a dangerous trap to me. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. So we see it very clearly when he says, get behind me, Satan. He's not calling Peter Satan, but the source in which the thought came from is from the evil one. And can I just pause here and say this? There are many of us in this room, some of our philosophy in life, the way we look at things, it is not from the spirit of God, but it has to be from somewhere. And I believe it's from the evil one. Now, you look at other portions of scriptures, and when we sin, it could also be from our flesh. So that's why some of you, the way you've been raised up with, with, without any Christian background, some of your views are still secular or they're still not God-centered. Some of you have been brought up in the church, but the problem is your parents, when they raised you, they raised you not only as a Christian, but it's also Chinese values or Asian values, and there's a syncretism mixing up. Some of your parents might be elders and deacons in the church. They love Jesus, but there are certain things that are completely against Scripture. I, let me give you one example that just totally blew my mind every time I hear this. There will be some people in our church who are students, who are trying to study the best that they can because they know that it's a calling from God, but they also want to love God by serving Him and serving the church. And then, then parents will be like, hey, stop being so committed to the church. Study and do well. Get a good job. And then when you have a family, maybe when you're 40, 50 years old, then, then you can serve God wholeheartedly. Somebody's like, that's what my mom said yesterday. The, 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 hold on. I want you to think about that philosophy. Somehow that pretty much, and I know where the parents are coming from because, you know, my wife and I, we, we've gone through that stage where we want our kids to do well so they could be successful and succeed in life. So they need to do well in school. They need to study hard. But here's the problem. The Bible says the, tomorrow is not guaranteed. So here you are. You're going to study and get a job and get a family. And then at 50 years old, you're going to start serving God. But 50 years old is not guaranteed. You might actually die tomorrow. That's what the Bible teaches. So the very thing that your parents are saying with a good heart, they're actually saying things that are unbiblical. This is the reason why I'm telling you right now, some of you are going to have to confront and you're going to butt heads with some of your, your parents because some of the things that you believe are a conviction from God because it's through scripture that it might not jive very well with your parents who happen to be a Christian. And this is the reason why I want to encourage us about conviction and your relationship with God is so important. So what Peter or what Jesus is saying is that get behind me saying because Peter your thoughts are not from the spirit of God but it's influenced by Satan. And that's why this idea of keeping our minds set on things above Colossians chapter 3 verse 2 you know this passage it says set your mind on things that are above not on things that are here on earth. The amplified version of that. I want you to read the yellow section. Listen to what it says. Set your mind and what? Key focus habitually. It's something you got to keep on doing. 
It's got to become a habit to think like Jesus, to think kingdom-centered, Christ-centered. On the things above, the heavenly things, not on things that are on the earth, which have only what? Temporal value. They're going to all pass away. Then after calling the crowd together with the disciples, Jesus makes this incredible conditional statement in verse 34. And the word is if. Jesus then after making that statement, he makes four other statements which start with the word for. So let's read verse 34 to 38 again just so that you can see this. After he calls the crowd, he says what? If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, count the four fours. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? And the fourth one, it says, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, will the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So when we read this, Jesus was inviting his followers. This is important. Listen to me. Jesus was inviting his followers, his disciples, to a life of discipleship. And it wasn't going to be easy. It's literally sweet, switching your allegiance that once were revolved around you to now revolving around Christ. It's interesting that Jesus mentions the cross. Because the cross was a violent and it was a painful execution for criminals. And he does mention the cross because the disciples hopefully would understand that following him, it's not going to be easy. The phrase, take up his cross, is in reference to how a person, that criminal who got charged and was about to get executed, he would carry the horizontal beam around his neck or on his shoulders all the way up to the place where he was going to get executed. That's why this idea of taking up your cross was taking that beam that was going to be used to crucify you and kill you. Now, you might think, wow, this is very violent and gruesome. And this deserves a, a, like a harsh rating. But I want you to understand, why did Jesus choose this metaphor? So metaphorically, this imagery of denying ourselves and taking up the cross was to say, we need to say no to ourselves, our selfishness, our own desires, and then allow God's desires God's thoughts to come. It literally is turning away from the idolatrous, self-centered life that we so desperately long for in this temporal world. It's learning how to say no to self-interest and to say yes to God. So even though it sounds very negative, I want you to see the positive aspect of taking up our cross. What Jesus is simply saying is when you say yes to me, in submission and obedience to me, that is when you are going to experience like things never before. That's why even in verse 35 through 37, we see this paradoxical concept. What does he say? If a person wants to save his life, he's going to lose it. But if a person loses his life that for the sake of the gospel and for Jesus, it says that he will save it. 
Did you catch that other phrase, forfeit his soul? It, that phrase is so important because it is similar to a person wasting their life. When you forfeit your soul, you're wasting your life. And not only wasting your life, but you're missing opportunities. You're forfeiting things that God can do. Can I just pause here? I, I want you to think about this as Jesus is challenging us. Not only in the declaration of faith, but also the denial of ourselves. Some of you are missing some of the greatest blessings in your life because you are saying yes to your flesh and yes to your self-interest rather than saying yes to God. And one thing that I've learned over the many, many years of walking with Jesus is this. The more I say yes to him, and sometimes those things are not easy, the more I realize the blessings come. Not because by doing this, it's going to give me this. Because there are a lot of times when I say yes to God, but there's no answer. But one thing that I have seen that is true is that God is always faithful. Can I get a good amen to that? That God is always faithful when we say yes to Him. How many of us have said yes to ourselves and our own petty dreams and our own self-centered and self-interest type of things and then it ends up to amount to nothing. Or we thought that it's going to fully satisfy us but it leaves us more empty and more thirsty, more hungry. God's word is true. You want to save your life? You're going to try so hard to preserve things, you're going to lose it. The more you surrender and give of your life to God, you will save it. I love what Scott McKnight said in his book, Following King Jesus. He writes this, those who aren't following Jesus aren't his followers. It's that simple. Followers follow, and those who do, don't follow aren't followers. To follow Jesus means to follow Jesus into a society where justice rules, where love shapes everything. To follow Jesus means to take up his dream and work for it. I'm wondering, what are you doing? Where are you when it comes to that decision? Is it taking up the cross and following him to lose your life, to gain it? Or are you deciding to take up your life and trying to save it and ultimately you will lose it? Now, as we turn to chapter 9, and we're going to go to the last point, I want you to see this. After he, talking about this whole taking up the cross, he said to them, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. What Jesus is now setting up, and you got, you got to see the sequence of things, is that he's pointing to the future glory and those who follow Jesus will see the power of the kingdom of God in their lives. So let's quickly close out with the second point and I want you to see this as he talks about the cost involved in following him, you got to declare your faith, you got to deny yourself. And then it's almost abruptly puts in there chapter 9, verse 1, but he's talking to, to about the future glory and about the power of the kingdom of God. And I want you to see in chapter 9, verse 2 to 13, how that's manifested. So the second point is simply this not only the cost of Jesus, but the clarity of following Jesus, the clarity in following Jesus. As I mentioned before, this miracle that's about to happen 
only three of the disciples are going to have the privilege of experiencing it. And you'll see this as we read chapter 9, verse 2 to 13. Listen to what it says here. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and the one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my son, beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly looking around, there no longer saw anybody uh, there. They no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say the first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased. It is written of him. So as we close out this section, I want you to see what is going on with this miraculous transfiguration. So it almost seems as if Jesus wanted to reinforce with clarity what it really meant to follow him. So here are a few things that we learn about the clarity of following Jesus from this miracle. First is this, we must observe Jesus' glory. We must observe Jesus' glory. When you look at this miracle of the transfiguration, Jesus' personal appearance was changed into a glorified form. It says here that Jesus' clothes became radiant, intensely white. This literally dramatic change in appearance was for the disciples to what? Behold His glory. To observe, to see, to gaze, to consider the glory of God. His body was literally transformed and the disciples saw Him and He as He will be when He returns in power and glory. So I want you to pause here and think about this. Why in the world did Jesus do this up in the mountain with these three? After six days prior, he was literally teaching about taking up your cross and following him. Because he was talking about how he must suffer, he must die, and he's going to resurrect from the dead. And what he wanted them to understand is what you see right now in this transfigured state as you behold this glory, that's how I'm going to come back. That's why this section is so important to the storyline of what Jesus was trying to teach the disciples. The encounter continued with the appearance of Moses and Elijah. The first thing that Peter suggests was what? Let's make three tents. Now some of you are thinking like, okay, one for Jesus, one for Moses, one for Elijah, but why? Now, if you don't understand Old Testament scripture, you won't understand the significance of Peter suggesting to set up three tents. The reason why Peter, being a Jew, suggested that they set up three tents 
was because he was thinking about the Feast of Tabernacles. Now listen to me carefully. Some of you don't even know this. Some of you might have read it, but it was a soap. It was boring section, so you just skip through it. Listen to me very carefully. The Feast of Tabernacle was a time for seven days where the Israelite people would build up these tents and they would stay in the tent. Why? Because it represented the presence of God. So what Peter was experiencing was the glory, the Shekinah glory of God. And the first thing that he reacted to was, should we just put up these tents so that we could stay here because God's presence is here? Now, you, you think about Peter, once again, always the first one to say some dumb stuff. You know, he does not understand. He's always, like, doing things. If your name is Peter and you actually are like Peter, uh, Lord bless you, you know. <laughs> Peter so desperately wanted this experience to be here. So he wanted to set up these tents, just like during the Feast of Tabernacles. But that wasn't God's heart. Jesus wanted them to see it so they can, afterwards, he dies and resurrects, they can proclaim that Christ is coming back in all of his glory. In fact, this encounter with Jesus was so powerful that both John and Peter talked about it. Let me give you these two verses to help you to understand. In John chapter 1, verse 14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And come on, what does it say? We have seen his glory. He's remembering that time when Jesus was transfigured. Like, we have seen his glory. Glory as the one only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Here's Peter as he talks about in 2 Peter. Listen to what it says. But we were what? Eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when we received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice, born from heaven, for we were what? With him on the holy mountain. This is so powerful. Because this encounter with Jesus being transfigured so impacted their lives that they even wrote about it after Jesus ascended into heaven. Can I ask us, when was the last time you lingered in the presence of God that you spent time beholding and observing the glory of God? This is the reason why we try to encourage you to sign up for the retreat. Even though the deadline has passed for the early registration, you don't want to miss it. Because we have an extended time to be in the presence of God all together as a church community to pray, to seek his face, to say, God, we want to meet with you. It will be an encounter that will change your life. Some of you might receive Jesus for the very first time. Some of you who are struggling with different things in your life, you don't even realize God will meet you in a powerful way. It will be an encounter that will change you. Same with missions. When you go on these missions projects, you're going to see things that you will not see normally when you're here in Hong Kong through the daily things of life. But you're going to be able to see things and see the power of God manifested as you're praying for people, as you're ministering to people, as you're going to some of these areas that that need the gospel. You're going to see God working in such a powerful way that it's going to be an encounter that will impact your life. And that's why for Peter and John, And James, as they were there with Jesus, they saw this transfigured figure. It was such a powerful moment as they observed Jesus' glory. You know what else we see here? When we talk about the clarity of following him, is that we 
must obey Jesus' words. The significance of Moses and Elijah appearing along with Jesus, and this is the part that many commentators will say, it is because Moses represented the law, Elijah represented the prophets. All throughout the New Testament, we'll talk about the, the law and the prophets. And so this idea of the law, God's word, and the prophets, those who are proclaiming the truth of God, by them appearing, it is almost as if to share with these three that Jesus Christ is greater than Moses. He's greater than Elijah. That means that even though you ought to obey the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, the things that were written, what he's saying is what? This is my son, who, my beloved son that I love. And what does he say? What, what does God say? The Spirit say, listen to him. That God's word, Jesus Christ, his word will be greater and almost like a fulfillment of all the Old Testament law and the prophets. That's why Moses and Elijah appeared in this time. Do you spend time with Jesus so that you can hear his voice and follow his word? Listen to what Oswald Chambers said when he was talking about having this intent to obey Jesus Christ. He writes this, if I am going to know who Jesus is, I must obey him. The majority of us don't know Jesus because we have not the remotest intent of obeying him. You want to get to know God more? You want to know Jesus more? Obey his word. Because the more you obey his word, you realize how true it is. And that's when you're going to understand God's heart for you, that he is good, that he is forgiving, that he is loving. How about us this morning? When was the last time you lingered in the presence of God? Do you read God's word just for head knowledge or do you read it and then obey it? When was the last time that you had this powerful encounter with Jesus? That's why we need this clarity in following Jesus. And this is the reason why it points back to the gospel. We are not able to save ourselves. I hope you understand that. No amount of good works, no amount of trying not to do certain things that you shouldn't do, that will never save you. You will fall short. This is why Jesus Christ had to come into this world. And he presented himself in such a way that you will see the glory and the beauty and the majesty of who Jesus Christ is. That the Son of God came into this world, suffered. He died a criminal's death as he was crucified on the cross. And then he rose again from the dead. And the promise is that he's going to come back. And all we need to do is humble ourselves and say, God, I, I completely surrender and relinquish my allegiance to myself and the world. And I want to become a citizen of your kingdom. And that takes faith to be able to say, Lord Jesus, I believe that you died on the cross for my sins. Lord Jesus, I believe that you rose again from the dead so that I could have new life. And I'm surrendering my life. I'm going to count the cost of following you. As I declare my faith, as I deny myself, there will be clarity in what it means to follow you because I'm experiencing you on a daily basis. That's why Jesus gives us, requires us to give our all in order for us to follow his call. Can I just give some quick next steps and then we'll spend some time in prayer and close out.
in order for us to count the cost of following Jesus and giving him our all. Here are several things that I want you to think about, even especially this coming week and maybe this coming year in 2023. First of all, frame your life with God's goodness. What are you trying to say, Pastor? I think for some of us, when we think about our lives, we always look at it from a very pessimistic view. But if you could look at every single situation you're going through, if you could look at every single thing that you're struggling with, whatever it is, frame it with God's goodness. Because you're not God, so you don't know what He's doing. It might be hard right now, but maybe that's the very thing that's going to break you. Maybe that's the very thing that will humble you. Maybe that's the very thing that will teach you about dependence on God, that you're not God, you're not strong enough. But God is. So if you could frame your life and everything that you see is the goodness of God, that He's good, that He loves me, He has a purpose for me, He has a plan for me. I'm wondering if that will help you to then consider the cost and say, I want to follow you, Lord Jesus. The second thing is this. Form our mindset with this eternal perspective. I don't know what it's going to take, but as Paul said, it is a habitual thing. You got to keep on reminding yourself that everything in this world is temporary. It's going to pass away. You didn't get that job. You didn't get that promotion. It's all temporary. That relationship didn't work out. That situation happened. As you frame it with the God's goodness, you realize that everything in this life is temporary. And I want to be a part of things that are eternal. So form this mindset on a daily basis. The third thing is this. Find time to spend with Jesus. Find time to spend with Jesus Christ in a personal way. It's amazing how some of you find time to work out. No, it really, it's amazing. Because if you think about it, it takes almost two hours of your, of your day. You go there, work out for an hour, then, you know, you have to go back and shower. We're talking about two hours, sometimes even three for some of you who do a hard workout. That's three hours in a day that you carve out. Why? Because it's important to you. Because you want to look good. I have nothing against run, uh, working out or running. Those things are good. Keeping your, the temple of God healthy, that's a good thing. But if we were really honest, some of us do it with all the wrong motives and do it for other things. But we're willing to invest three hours, two hours in working out. But we don't have, even have time for 15 minutes in the Word and just being able to meditate on that. you got to make time for what is important. That's why one of the things I said, we don't have an excuse. Like if you were to really look at your whole life and on a given day, all the things that you invest in, you just realize, wow, I have a lot of time. College students, you have, oh my, okay, I, I'm going to stop here. Because you have all the time in the world. No, I don't, Pastor. Yes, you do. If, if you don't believe me, go talk to a single adult. They will smack you over the head in a loving way. <laughs> They'll clap at you. Because they'll be like, you have a lot of time, dude. Because they were there and they realized, oh, it was so hard. But now they look back like, oh, my God. And you single adults, you think you're so busy because you do a lot of OTs? Huh. Talk to some people in the covenant ministry with little ones running around all over the world. It's going to get busier 
as you get older. Until you get into your 70s and you're just relaxing. You're going to get busy. Find a time, the solace, that the, the oasis where even in the midst of the business. That's why I've been always constantly encouraging you. Stop looking at your phone when you travel. Now, I understand some of you have to respond. Where are we going to meet? Okay, I'm going to meet you there. I'm going to be late. I understand that. But just one time, just try it. Just for that 15-minute commute, that eight-minute commute on the train. Don't close your eyes. You're going up the stairs. But just like that's for that 10 minutes of that commute, don't look at your phone and use that time just to soak up the presence of God. And just affirm those things that are true, that I'm forgiven, I'm loved, I'm accepted, I'm cherished, and that I'm known by you. To be able to just understand that and know that, to enjoy that, the sweetness of God in that 10 minutes, that 15 minutes. Some of you are like, well, I take a ferry. That's even better. God's creation and all, you know, of the ocean or the sea. And here you are. I'm not saying do it every single time. But just make some time in these precious moments to be able to just be in His presence. And lastly, forge ahead in faith and trust in Jesus. Part of counting the cost and following Jesus with clarity is that you realize that God has your best interest in mind. The best is yet to come. That means that you have to have faith in Him because he is a good God. That's how I see life. He's a good God. And everything that he's doing, he's doing it so that I could have this eternal perspective. So we don't have to be afraid. We have courage and boldness to step ahead and forge ahead in, in, into our future. Because God is already there. Amen. He's already in our future. And he will be with us. He will be beside us. He will be ahead of us. He will be our rear guard. He will be behind us. He will lead us. Therefore, I pray that we will give our all. Let's give everything we have to Jesus because he's worth it. And as we do, I'm telling you right now, you're going to experience some incredible things in your calling that God has given to you. I'm excited for 2023. It's only been about a week. But still, so many great things have happened and greater things are going to happen. And I'm trusting God for that. Come on, let's stand together as we close out in prayer. Can we do that? Thank you for listening to the Harvest Mission Community Church Podcast. For more information, visit our website at hongkong.hmcc.net.